I, uh, I have to start out by asking, how many of you do not typically come to this church on a Sunday morning? Would you raise your hands? One, two, three, four, five, six. And how did you hear about this? Huh? Your daughter. Why is your daughter not here? Uh, I, I'm always curious. I'm fascinated by, by just the kind of way people hear about stuff and, and everything. So if you're not a regular... Uh, member of this church, we really use these forums to kind of lure you in uh, because, frankly, we need your tithe. Jason, am I right? Yeah, we need your help. We need your help, so please don't leave us, ever. Please don't leave us. No, uh, it's so fun uh, to get to talk uh, at these, uh, these forums, vocare seminars. We always have amazing speakers until today, but I'm not joking. We, we've had almost every week, it's somebody I think, how did Jason get that person? How did Jason get that person? And it turns out in his early days, Jason worked for TMZ. He's got a lot of dirt on a lot of big Christian <laughs> celebrities, and he figures cash it in for the gospel, you know, so that's a good thing. Um, I want to talk about my book, If You Can Keep It. Uh, I wasn't going to have it for sale. My uh, assistant, who, who's not here, said, let me just drop off a couple of boxes. And um, is the plural of box boxes? Yeah, I'm, I'm new with the whole English thing, so, so walk with me through this. Um, but uh, so there'll be twenty dollars for one, thirty dollars for two, and forty dollars for three. Do you see what I did there? Okay, because we're looking to move these suckers. So, um, in all seriousness, I believe in this book very, very strongly. Not because I wrote it, but because I love my country and I care about my country. And I think we're in a, in a bad spot in our country, no matter. Uh, what you think about anything, I think most people could agree, if you look at the facts, we're in a, we're in a tough spot. There's plenty of seats up front. Um, uh, the reason, um, well, I've done a lot of media on the, on the book, and, um, but it's hard to sum up. Um, I, I can say that everything that I've, of everything that I've written, without any question in my mind, this is the most important book that I have written. Now, I'm not going to back that up now because we don't have time, but I want to tell you that I feel that way. I feel like I could give one book to everybody I know in America, it would be this book, because there's a message here that in many ways, and this is a lot of the kind of stuff that I write, it's not that the message is so original or so extraordinary, how would I come up with it? It's just that for some reason, it's not getting out there. And so when you get it out there, people say, wow, what's that? I haven't seen that. And I think, well, that's the problem. Everyone should be familiar with what's in this book which is why I wrote the book. And the tragedy is that most Americans of my age or younger, I just turned 29 uh, a week ago, uh, were, anybody laughing? No. Uh, the, the, uh, the fact is that for the last 30 or 40 or 50 years, we've not been teaching what's in this book. And when I realized that, I thought that is unsustainable. It means that there is effectively no America except in name only. If the people in America don't understand what's in this book, and I don't mean the book, but I mean the, the ideas in the book, in a way, we, we're not sustainable. And so it's my argument that we are at this point on the very edge of becoming America in name only because we have a citizenry that doesn't know what it means to be American. America is an idea, right? You can't really be born American. You can say I'm born American, but you're really born American in name only. To buy into the ideas of the founders is what it means to be truly an American. So you can legally be an American, but really be anti-American or neutral or ignorant or whatever. Um, this is the first country in the history of the world founded on an idea. And this is the kind of thing that I, that I, that I want to talk about in the book, is that 
there's a uniqueness to this country which is uh, no longer really understood or appreciated. I think in the first part of the book, which I think is the least uh, exciting part of the book, I kind of unpack what does it mean, what is America, and how is it that we have forgotten what a wild and crazy and insane and fragile and glorious and ambitious idea America is. Most of us, myself included, didn't really grow up getting that. Like, you know, you want a good history teacher to say, excuse me, excuse me, I want you to understand one thing. This should not exist. We should not have these freedoms, these liberties. In the history of the world, there was never a nation that had what we had until a bunch of crazy geniuses somehow in the 1770s actually thought they could pull this off on a national historical level. People had always talked about freedom, that always been little pockets of freedom, but the idea of creating a nation based in freedom, now again, I know when I say freedom, most of us don't even know what I mean by that. You're like, what is freedom exactly? What kind of freedom? If you read 1984 by George Orwell, you know, he talks about freedom from lice, right? You could have all these different ideas of, of what freedom means. Well, the freedom I'm talking about is the idea of genuine self-government. In other words, that you would be as free from government as possible without anarchy. That's the goal, that's the ideal. As little government as possible without anarchy. So how little government can you have before it turns into license and chaos and the strong taking advantage of the weak because they're stronger, might makes right. Since the beginning of time, we've had nothing but that effectively, right? With a few variations, but you basically have the strongest people are in charge at some point some of the weak people get strong and figure out a way to topple the strong guy and then they're in charge and then they got the guns, right? That's the history of humanity, basically, because as Christians we know we are fallen. And so it's not, it's not about nobility or anything like that. Even the Romans, they would have these little bubbles of, you know, uh, uh, these nice ideas backed up with the fact that they will torture, crucify you to death if you go against those ideas. Uh, the fact of the matter is that we have never really had self-government in the history of the world, but we are so inured to the idea of it that we're shamefully taking it for granted and therefore not doing anything to propagate the ideas because we kind of think, well, this is normal, right? This is as far from normal as you can get, and this will go away fairly quickly. Um, the title of the book, If You Can Keep It, comes from, well actually let me, let me ask, I always ask just because I'm curious, how many people know exactly what I mean when I say if you can keep it? Okay, you guys can go you have a cigarette break and come back in 10 minutes. I know you smoke, get out of here. No, so, so here's the reality. That's one of the examples of the things that I didn't know until a few years ago and most of the stuff in the book I didn't know until a few years ago. And I realized if I don't know this stuff, we're in big trouble. It means most Americans my age and younger don't know this stuff. And if we don't know this stuff, how can we be a people? Now there's a lot here. One of the basic ideas, which is, uh, you know, it goes, goes cuts across every nation and every culture and every people. In order to be a people, you have to have common stories. You have to have things that everybody believes in, right? So uh, when you think the closest we get is like think of Abraham Lincoln. Everybody in America goes, yeah, black people like Abraham Lincoln, white people like Abraham Lincoln. How much do we have in this country where everybody in America says, that's America, that's great. 
we've gotten to a point where we don't really have those stories. And there was a time every kid in America knew the story of George Washington crossing the Delaware. There was a time every American knew the heroism of George Washington on the battlefield, the reason he was called the father of our country, and the fact that he deserved to be called the father of our country because he was just outrageously self-sacrificial. We've typically only heard the negative side. We say, oh, he was a slave owner, you know, right? Well, he was also a sinner, and I'm sure at certain times like a pompous jerk, but that's not taught in school, right? But you do hear he was a slave owner as if there was any property owner in Virginia who was not a slave owner. There wasn't one, you know, but the point is we take that to sort of tear down George Washington, and I think that that's, that's simply not fair because Thomas Jefferson, all of those guys, they did some things that are so outrageously good, you need to celebrate those good things. It's, it's kind of like a trick to say, well, we don't want to talk about them because they were white, uh, powerful slave owners or whatever. In, in a way, that's a side issue. We've always known since, you know, whatever, that slavery is bad. We know that a lot of things are bad. We know that Thomas uh, Jefferson, you know, slept with his slaves, that he was, I mean, how many people think adultery is a good thing, right? But you don't, you don't say when you're talking about Jefferson, there's plenty of seats, by the way, don't be shy. The, uh, you, you don't talk when you're talking about Jefferson, say like, yeah, he wrote the Declaration of Independence, who cares? Like he cheated on his wife. Um, we know cheating on your wife is, is bad, but it's the focus of these things that has kind of changed in, I think, a creepy way. Because, you know, John F. Kennedy, let's talk about the beautiful young man who was killed in Dallas, whose picture is on the silver dollar, which is no longer silver. Um, you know, did you know that, like, he was such a good guy that he brought innumerable prostitutes into the White House so he could have sex with them in, in the White House, right? Every nation's leader has good and bad, and it's all about what people want to focus on, right? I didn't mean to get off on this, but what I'm trying to say is that there was a time in our country when we all said, yeah, I know things are messed up, but we're going to celebrate George Washington for doing this, and we're going to celebrate Ben Franklin and the kite, and we're going to celebrate Nathan Hale, who said, I only have one life to give for my country, and is hanged at age 21, this noble young man. We celebrated those things because every culture has to have stories and people and things that they celebrate. But something happened in the last 40 or so years where I argue we have kind of focused on the negative and the heroic in general in our culture has fallen out of favor. Like something happened basically in the 60s where we kind of celebrated the anti-hero and when we see something really heroic, we kind of think that's kind of corny. It's kind of saccharine. We all know that, you know, uh, Mickey Mantle was like uh, an alcoholic, so we don't celebrate Mickey Mantle uh, anymore. Everybody you can find, you find, yeah, but, 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 but. And I think that's had a deeply pernicious effect in general, but mostly uh, on America because we are a unique and a rare and a beautiful idea that has blessed people around the world. Now, I'm not going to pretend we haven't done bad things. That's the point, right? We all know that. Just like every one of you has done bad things, I know specifically what some of those things are. But we don't have time for me to point them out. But the point is there's a time to focus on that. There's a way to deal with that. I'll give an example. What does it mean to love somebody, right? If you love a child, okay, you don't say that child can do no wrong. If, that, if you say that child can do no wrong, you're a fool. But if you look at the bad stuff that kid does and tell that kid you're bad, 
you are bad, you'll never amount to anything, you are bad, you're not loving that kid, right? To love somebody is to draw them to repentance, to make them see what they did was bad, to say, I'm sorry, I get it, I don't want to do that again, help me not to do it again. And they grow, and they become better, and they leave those things behind. The same is true of a nation, right? If we say America, right or wrong, we don't, you know, you have to understand that we had slavery in this country. Well, how do we deal with slavery? By the grace of Jesus, we abolished slavery in this country, and hundreds of thousands of young men died, many of them horrible deaths, so that we could eradicate this ugliest thing in our history. So what do we say? We say, that's good. We repented of that. We don't have that anymore. Jim Crow, all of that stuff. We recognize this is bad, and we struggled, and we got rid of it. You want to talk about what you're doing that's wrong. You don't want to ignore it, but you want to repent of it, and you want to move on. What does God say? He says, I'm not going to remember those things against you, right? I'm not gonna, I'm, I, I, I want to forget what you've done. I want you to be better. When we have a kid, we don't want to remind them over and over and over the bad thing that they did. You know how that crushes somebody. Well, it's kind of my argument, and again, this is to some extent a sloppy argument, so I want you to go with it. I don't have time to you know, uh, uh, cross every T and dot every I. But what I'm saying is that there was a time in this country where we celebrated who we are, we kind of knew who we were, um, and it made us want to be better. It made us to want to pass on what is good and to move on from what was bad. But in the 60s, a kind of a negative narrative took hold where what was good and heroic and true and beautiful, we kind of began to say, that's corny, and we began to focus, sort of over-focus on some of the bad stuff, right? Now that's just, that's one part of the, the argument. But if you can keep it as an example of that, I would say a number of years ago, most kids in America would know if you can keep it, of course, Benjamin Franklin, he's leaving the Constitutional Convention, 1787, a woman comes up to him and says, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us, a monarchy or a republic? And he replies, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Now, here's the key. If you really know your history, and again, I didn't, and I'll bet most of us don't. We kind of take it for granted. We forget how important it is to know this stuff. What we have, to repeat myself here, this kind of freedom and self-government and everything should not work. This is not normal. In the history of the world, this kind of stuff doesn't work. In 1776, something happened where a number of men decided, we think, we think we can pull this off. First of all, we think we can get free of the tyranny of England, which was real tyranny. Have you ever experienced tyranny? It's horrible, but that's what people have dealt with and they're dealing with it while we sit in this nice room. There are people around the world de dealing with various forms of tyranny, right? And we kind of think, really? Well, yeah, really, okay. So. They thought, we think we can pull this off. Once we get free from the British, that's barely step one. That was a miracle, okay? And if you, actually, if you read the book, you realize, like, that shouldn't have happened either. I, I see God's hand involved in that. Now, you can't prove that. But you look at the facts, you tell me what you think. It's crazy. There was a battle of Long Island right here. We should have been crushed in the bud, over, and something happened. I tell the story in the book. It is, I think crazy, miraculous what happened. So you begin to wonder if God somehow had his hand on this because what we have is so wonderful, it's, it's, it never worked and it's not supposed to work now, but somehow they pulled this off. 1783, the battle, uh, the war is won and it wasn't working so well. Now again, if you know your history, which I didn't, so I, I can't point the finger because I wrote this book because I, I don't remember this stuff. If I learned it, I forgot it and I, maybe I didn't learn it. But 
the government we had was too weak. Now we know weak government, good. Strong government, bad. But if it's too weak, that's also bad. So they said, we've got to go back to Constitutional, uh, uh, to, to Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where I'm going tomorrow night, actually, to film something. And we've got to see if we can redo what we have. We've got to create like a constitution or something that's a little bit stronger or a lot stronger because this ain't working, right? So we had an existentialist crisis in 1787. They go in that building. People didn't know what they were doing in the building. Maybe they're coming up with a form of soft monarchy because they realize, hey, who are we kidding? We've never had liberty in the history of the world. We've got to have some kind of soft monarchy. Maybe we'll grow into something better or whatever. So this woman, Mrs. Powell of Philadelphia, says to Franklin, Dr. Franklin, what have you given us, a monarchy or a republic? And he says, a republic, madam, if you can keep it. Now, I always thought when I heard that that's kind of cute, right? A republic, madam, if you can keep it. Be good. Uh, no, I think it was a chilling thing that he said, a haunting thing. I think he was thinking... I'm smart enough to know what we did in there is fragile and it might not work at all. And we're all nervous, but it's been 100 days. It's been hot in Philly in the summer. We needed to get it done. We think we got it done, but who knows? I'm 82. I'll be dead in a few years. I don't know what the future holds. A republic, madam, if you can keep it. What that means, of course, is that the Constitution they created was utterly worthless apart from people living it out. Now, what does that mean? It means the most obvious thing in the world. Self-government requires people to govern themselves, right? Like you kind of think, oh yeah, I get that. But on what level? Well, on every level. In other words, it means that you actually have to govern yourselves uh, individually. And then on a larger scale, in a town, in a city, in a state, you have to govern yourselves. But that's, that's not so easy. How do people govern themselves? Well, this is, comes to the other part of the book, uh, which I think is the most important part because I stole it from Oz Guinness. Uh, Oz Guinness wrote a book called The Free People's Suicide, uh, which I recommend, and he, in that book, talks about something he coins the term the golden triangle of freedom. He says this idea of how the American experiment worked was understood by every one of the founders. Every one of them understood this. And there's three pieces, obviously, to the triangle. The first is freedom requires virtue. I remember when I heard that, I thought, what? Like, if you went to a classical Christian school or you were homeschooled, you'd probably go like, of course. <laughs> Most of us did not. Most of us went to public schools or whatever. Freedom requires virtue. Now, Osgin says all the founders understood this. Totally obvious. I didn't even know what he's talking about. What does that mean? It means that self-government requires people to govern themselves, which means you yourself have to have sufficient virtue that you do the right thing whether you're being forced to do the right thing. You don't need somebody with a gun and a threat that you'll just do it on your own. You're self-governing for the most part. So the population needed to be mostly virtuous. Not everybody's virtuous and not every single person is perfectly virtuous, but by and large, every single one of the founders, I say every one, not some little Christian clique, every one of the founders understood this concept. Freedom, self-government requires a virtuous population, they wrote about it. Franklin wrote about it. Washington wrote about it. I don't know how many of them wrote about it, but I quote them all in this book because you need to see with your own eyes, for them, there is no such thing as America, there's no such thing as liberty without a virtuous people, period, case closed. Now, if they all understood this, 
and it's so obvious. It's like the one plus one equals two of you know, an engineering student, right? If you don't know one plus one equals two, don't build any bridges because they won't work, right? This is like the building block. This is it. They all understood it. How is it that we were not taught this in school? Is it just because we're uncomfortable with the idea of virtue? Yes. Of course we are. We live in a culture that like virtue, we think virtue, what's that? That's like a Victorian term. We get uncomfortable with right and wrong and I'm gonna tell you how to be and not to be, whatever. We just get freaked out by anything smacking of heroism or, or anything like that. So you never will hear this most fundamental thing. Freedom requires virtue, which they all understood. They all wrote about it. Plenty seats uh, anywhere here in, in front. Um, and, and yet, it kind of makes sense when you hear it. And then you also understand not only does it make sense, but they all said that it makes sense and it, it can't work. Freedom requires virtue. First part of the triangle. Second part of the triangle, virtue in turn requires faith. Now immediately we're all trained, postmodern, 21st century people. Whoa, how arrogant. Does this mean that only people of faith have virtue? Well, of course it doesn't, but it does mean what anybody with any common sense can tell you is people with faith tend to be more inclined to virtue. They believe in something larger than themselves, so they say, I'm not going to do this. Why? Because I'm wonderful? No, because I think God doesn't want me to do it, and I actually care about what God thinks, right? So why is it that all of the founders said, Freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. They all said it. They were all pro-Christian, pro-faith, even if they weren't themselves Christian. Franklin was not theologically orthodox as a Christian, but he understood the value that this was not optional stuff. He said that unless you have people that are serious about faith, this whole thing doesn't work. People aren't just virtuous because they're nice people. There's no such thing as nice people. We're, we're all inclined to do selfish things. Um, so... We also know people who have faith who are not virtuous. So it's not a direct correlation, but the point is the general idea, all the founders said that the general idea is populations of faith tend to be virtuous. We see it, we write about it, forget about what we believe, we're just telling you this is a reality and that the reason America is gonna work is because most of the people in America have some kind of Christian faith or, or, or whatever, right? Franklin, was very close friends with George Whitfield. I read a whole long chapter in the book about George Whitfield, one of the greatest heroes in the history of the world. I would argue maybe the greatest American hero because without George Whitfield, I don't think America could have come into being. Now, a lot of you are saying, what are you talking about? That's the point of the book. The fact that we don't all know this is, is sheer lunacy. George Whitfield is so central to the founding of this republic it's just bizarre that our culture has, has looked away. Now, why do we look away from Whitfield? He was an evangelist. He was a, a, you know, a born-again Jesus freak preaching up and down the 13 colonies for decades with outrageous success, so much so that 80% of the people in the colonies at that time had heard him preach in person at least once. This is before TV. Right? Only the very wealthy could afford TVs in those days. I think you know that, if you know your history. So try to imagine that there was a guy that 80% of all the people in the colonies, that's all the people, that's pretty much 100% if you think about what the colonies were like back then, had heard him preach in person at least once. He preached to thousands, okay? When you read accounts of this, and again, it's all in the book, but it, it, it's, it's a phenomenon. I mean, it makes the Beatles look lame. This is like something that just changed 
everything. Everybody is running on horseback, sweating to get to hear him in person. And that was something that tied into the possibility of self-government. And, and Ben Franklin was very good friends with Whitfield. He didn't buy his theology exactly. But this is the key. Even though he didn't, he said, whatever Whitfield's selling is good for America. Because when revival breaks out, as it was doing over and over and over and over again, what happened? Franklin saw it. He wrote about it. They all saw it. They wrote about it. What would happen when revival breaks out? Crime goes down. Period. You don't need to like it. You could hate Jesus. It doesn't make any difference. You observe when Jesus comes in, crime goes down. Period. They saw it over and over again. Self-government, therefore, goes up. Virtue goes up. Those people can govern. We don't have to worry about that. They're all Jesus freaks. They'll pay their taxes. Don't worry. I'm telling you, if all of the founders understood that faith and virtue are linked the way I've just described, shouldn't that be taught in our public schools? Do you have to like it to teach it? Do you have to be a Republican? What do you have to be to teach what I just said? This is historical fact. This is inextricably intertwined with everything we know about this country. This was taught for around 200 years, and in the last 40 or 50 years, it ceased to be taught. Now, to my mind, that's, you know, that's not just harmful to America, but it's a crime, because you're supposed to teach the truth even if you don't like it. Well, it hasn't been taught. The third piece of the triangle, freedom requires virtue. Virtue requires faith. Faith, in turn, requires freedom. This is the key, and this is a big part of the genius of the founders. Freedom and virtue, freedom requires virtue, virtue requires faith. Faith, in turn, requires freedom because if faith is coerced, it's no faith. You know that, right? If you go to church because the government says you better go to church, you better go to that Protestant church because we're going to persecute the Catholics in this state, in this uh, uh, country. You better go to the Catholic Church because we're a Catholic nation. We don't buy into this Protestant rebellion. They, they had plenty of that in the old country. So in the new country, they said, we know that the genius of the whole thing is freedom of, of, of religion. People can worship as they like. Now, we had plenty of that in the colonies before 1776, and we had plenty of that not happening in the colonies before 1776. There's an error in the book, A Sentence, where I sort of imply that we had plenty religious liberty uh, in, the, in the colonies before 1776. That's not exactly true. I mean, it's, it is truer than not, because th this was a place where there was plenty of that going on. But the fact of the matter is, by 1776, they figured out this is what we need. We cannot have a state saying, we're a Baptist state, we're a congregational state. We need freedom of religion. The government has to be totally agnostic on the issue of faith and religion. The government has no business interfering. The people are free. Same thing with the free market. We know how the free market works. If the government says, I love Apple and I hate Microsoft, that is like communism and socialism. It's the death of the free market. You know that. The government cannot pick winners. If the government picks winners in terms of corporations and gets heavy-handed, that's the end of the free market, it's the end of freedom. If the government picks winners in the, in the, in the free market of ideas and the free market of faith, it's game over. You no longer have freedom. Freedom means people can do what they like. Even if it's stupid, they have freedom, they can do what they like, and the truth will out. Plenty of seats over there, all over here if you're just coming in. So, 
they said that we need to have freedom of religion, not freedom of worship. Freedom of worship means you kind of come into a building on Sunday morning, you do your little weird ritual, and when you come out of that building, you bow to the secular authority of the state. That's, those are weasel words, freedom of worship. Anybody who says freedom of worship, including Franklin Delano Roosevelt or Hillary Clinton, when they use that term, say, ah, 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 we don't want freedom of worship. That's a joke. We want freedom of religion, which means that we can practice our faith 24-7. When we leave the building, we practice our faith in the marketplace, in the schoolroom, in the public sphere. That's freedom of religion. That's what the founders said we have in the Constitution. That is what's worked for us for 200-something years. So religion has to be free. Otherwise, the people won't really live it out, right? In other words, if you want virtuous people who really believe this stuff, they have to choose it themselves. It cannot be coerced. Atheism cannot be coerced. Uh, atheism cannot be prohibited. People have to be totally free. And the founder said, we really believe that the truth will out, that if you give people total freedom, the best markets, uh, the best companies will rise to the top that the best ideas will rise to the top. We believe in that. Now, is that always the case? No, you have to have a virtuous populace, okay? If a virtuous populace exists, they will pick good leaders, but if the people are corrupt, they will pick corrupt leaders. Who can I pick who's gonna help me the most? Or if the leaders are all corrupt, then the people say, I don't believe in the whole thing, it's a sham, it's rigged, I don't care, I'm not gonna vote. That's the death of the whole thing. So you see how balanced this is, how difficult this is. It needs to work uh, on all these levels. So I basically say in the book that the idea of the people keeping the republic is at the heart of everything, right? The golden triangle of freedom explicates this idea, okay, that, it, that it's up to us if we are not virtuous if we don't do the right thing, if we don't have the freedom to do the right thing, the whole thing breaks down and you become governed from above or from without, right? In other, in other words, let's say tomorrow the Supreme Court you know, has just enough people to basically say, whatever you say, the people, we say it's unconstitutional, eh, we win, right? Once that happens, you no longer have the people governing themselves, right? So it's always possible for what we have to spin in the wrong direction and go away. It could happen a hundred different ways, okay? But with us, it's probably not gonna happen with a military coup. It's probably gonna happen some other way. Or we're gonna get a soft form of government where let's say people just stop voting or caring, right? And they kinda let them run it. Now if they are running it and they're not actually representing you, that's no longer self-government. You have to believe the system works enough that you want to be part of the system, you want to govern yourself. When you see a mistake, you say, ah, ah, no, you're wrong. And you talk about it in the press, you talk about it in your churches, and you fix the problem because you want this to keep working. If you don't do that, if you get cynical, it's over. And so my thesis, I don't really make the, the, the case strongly in the book, but the underlying thesis of the book is that's kind of where we are. We're at a, at a tipping point because if you don't teach this stuff for 40 or so years, People tune out, and before you know it, the government just steps in. That's what the government does. The government, if you don't govern yourself, somebody will govern you. That's just the way it is. There's no such thing as anarchy. Somebody's going to step in. You're going to get more rules, more regulations, whatever. Before you know it, you don't have that freedom, which really is at the heart of entrepreneurship and, and uh, sharing freedom. The other thing that I want to say is that the reason this is so important is because it's self-perpetuating and self-multiplying, right? Part of the reason we don't 
uh, understand how great America is anymore is because our ideas have spread around the world. So we don't see our uniqueness anymore because in fact we're not unique. There are plenty of people around the world who have pieces of this, who understand about religious freedom or free markets or, or whatever it is. And so we kind of think, well, this is, like, this is the new norm. It's not the new norm. We have always been at the forefront of this. And by the way, to be at the forefront of something, I think you know this from the story of the Jews, right? To be chosen by God to have something that other people don't have or to represent something or to be a voice for something, you don't click your heels and go, yippee, God chose me, chose me. You say, bummer, God chose me. I have a huge responsibility. It's a privilege, but Lord, I'm happy if you choose somebody else. But he says, no, it's you. So this country has had tremendous blessings from God, but when the Lord blesses you, it is so that you can be a blessing to others. It's not for yourself. So I would argue for 200 years, by and large, we have been a blessing around the world. Do you know how many missionaries have preached the gospel of Jesus around the world sent by American dollars? Do you have any idea? That's a fact. Do you know uh, how many people around the world have heard about freedom from America? Do you know how many people around the world who had, there was an earthquake or something like that and American money flows there to help them? Why? Why do we care? If it's about self-interest, what do you care about somebody drowning in a tsunami? Or what, why do you care? We care because even though we're not an officially Christian nation, we are fundamentally a Christian nation in the sense that we bought into those ideas. Every good atheist in America knows I'm supposed to help those who are suffering. Mr. Atheist, where did you get that idea? He has no idea. Do you understand? There's nowhere to get that idea from except to pull it out of thin air or to get it from a Judeo-Christian ethic, which you pretend is not a Judeo-Christian ethic. You just pretend you're really cool and you like to help people. That's a joke. So we're the most Christian nation in the world because we're not officially Christian. When you become officially Christian, it becomes mandatory, freedom goes down, and it all breaks down. But when you're not officially Christian, as we are not, true Christianity can flourish. And that's what's happened here. But as I said, in the last 40 or 50 years, we've not been teaching the Golden Triangle of Freedom. We've not been teaching about the heroics of all of the founders and all this stuff, the stuff that keeps a nation full of uh, its ideas, okay? The story of George Washington, the story of Abraham Lincoln. I have a lot about Abraham Lincoln in here. Nobody believed everything I'm talking about more than Abraham Lincoln. So if you like Abraham Lincoln, you need to deal with the fact that everything I'm saying, the faith, the heroism, all that stuff, he represents it better than anybody. But something happened, as I said, and it kind of drifted away. And I think we're in a really tough spot as a result of it. So at the heart of this is loving your country. In order to love your country, you need to know the stories of your country. When you hear the story of Nathan Hale, how this 21-year-old who was a devout Christian and a noble young man wanted to serve his country, volunteered for something that was dangerous, and then was hanged by the British, and then said, I only regret I have but one life to give for my country. Now, in the last 40 years, if you're in a college like Yale, where I had the fortune and the misfortune of going, what you're going to hear is like, yeah, he probably didn't really say that. Who cares? Like, he probably said something like it. He didn't say exactly that. But the point is, we're all focused on the worm and the apple, the steroid and the sprinter. We don't want to celebrate heroism because that's too corny. We have to talk about something bad, right? We, we have to talk about Paul Revere instead of celebrating that amazing poem and this amazing heroic thing that he did 
we have to say, eh, it didn't really happen that way. Like, uh, really, uh, he didn't row himself across the Charles River. He was, he was rowed by somebody else. Or he didn't do this, or he didn't do that. Folks, do you understand what's happening? People are they're focusing, they're nitpicking, and it's no different than somebody says, isn't Suzanne Metaxas a wonderful person? And you say, yeah, but you know what? One day I saw her do this thing. Who can't say that about me and you and whatever? It's all about focus. What Paul Revere did deserves celebration. We should be on our knees thanking Jesus that he set up men in our republic willing to sacrifice their lives for what we have today. Every one of us is celebrating it even if we're not celebrating it. You live out freedom and stuff and you kind of think like, well, it's my birthright. You don't deserve it any more than somebody in a prison camp in North Korea for their faith in Jesus deserves to be there. So we need to understand we have been outrageously blessed. First, you need to get that and you need to understand that that's a, that's a fact. That's not just like a perspective. And then you need to understand God has blessed us to be a blessing. So we have a responsibility to spread our freedom, to care about somebody suffering in North Korea, to give our money, our time, our efforts, our talents, to use these blessings and these freedoms while we can. Because there are people who don't have these freedoms and these blessings and there's not much that they can do. So that to my mind is, is who we are as a people. To cover the book, I have a, there's a picture of the Statue of Liberty holding out the torch and it's fading. And the idea is that we have been this torch of liberty for good or for ill, We've nonetheless been the place on earth that people like my mom and dad in the, in the 50s, they looked to America as the place that, if only I could get to America. What if I could get to America? They have jobs, they have freedom. There's not a war between the communists and the monarchists there right now. There's actually a stable government where, where you pay your taxes and they generally go to the right things. And wow, I wish I could go there. People around the world today, as you well know, wanna go here, right? Now, if it's just so they can get, like, you know, public relief and whatever, if they want to game the system, I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about good people who see opportunity and they say, I wish I could become a part of that. Now, that's the other thing, and I'll close on this. America is the only nation in the history of the world that anybody can become as American as George Washington. It doesn't matter what you look like. My mother and father from Greece and Germany who have accents to this day, they're as American as George Washington, according to the American way of seeing things. That's not true in other countries. In other countries, you'll always be an outsider, okay? You know, if you uh, go to Germany or France or whatever, it's gonna be a long time before those countries are anywhere near saying, you know, you're as German as Goethe. So I think it's important for us to recognize that. Uh, the reason on the cover, the Statue of Liberty is fading, is I'm, I'm saying this is going away. The torch is still in focus, but unless we the people do something about this, and I do mean you and me, it's, it's over. Uh, I wouldn't have written the book unless I believe that there's hope, but I really believe this is going away very swiftly. I mean, it's been going away swiftly, it's almost gone. And I wrote this because, you know, as a Jesus follower, I'm commanded to hope, I'm commanded to do what is right. It's up to God to, to, to deal with history, but I better do my part. So even when I see friends saying like, man, I'm not gonna vote in this election, I wanna say, excuse me. If you still have a hand attached to your arm, you need to vote. I don't know who you think you are that you can take this for granted. Until you can't vote, you vote. Until you can't do something good, do something good. 
If it all goes down in flames, good. Praise God no matter what happens. But don't, by your inaction, contribute it to going down in flames. God is looking to you. He especially is looking to his people because if the church is not the church, the whole thing goes away. I said George Whitfield was at the heart of this. If he had not preached revival for decades in America, up and down the 13 colonies, for years and years and years and years, he preached four times a day. He, he may, I say he makes Paul the Apostle and Billy Graham look like atheist losers. <laughs> he was possessed. No one has ever done anything like this. He must have had a really great marriage. Can you imagine? <laughs> and he didn't, by the way. But because of him, this country got religion. This country was able to govern itself, was able to see this. He also was a unifying figure. He was like the patron saint of America. Uh, Benedict Arnold, before he became a horrible traitor, when he was still on our side, made a pilgrimage to the grave of Whitfield to tear off a piece of cloth of Whitfield's uh, cloak because he wanted a holy relic. That's what they thought of Whitfield. He, he was America. He had united the 13 colonies in his person. There was no other celebrity. People had never seen Benjamin Franklin in Maine or in Georgia. They had all seen Whitfield. He represented liberty, the liberty of the gospel, that you can govern yourselves, you'll have no king but Jesus. I mean, you can't overstate his impact. And yet today, he's not taught in schools. We, sh we should all be hopped up, ticked off about that. That is a sin. It is just, it's just a lie. It's like they never taught slavery in schools. They don't teach that in your schools. We had slavery, you fought a war, nah, we didn't hear about it. We were focused on other cool stuff. This is who we are. You have to teach it. We haven't been teaching it. Because we've not been teaching this, we have a couple of generations that don't understand this, that don't understand our role in living out our faith, in living out our national creed, and we're in, in big trouble. Uh, I believe we can keep it, but the reason I wrote the book is because I have a, a desire to get these ideas in the hands of every single American. I wish I could give this book to every single uh, American. It's easy to read, and it's, I think it's fascinating because these stories are they're fascinating. I thought, how amazing I get to tell these amazing stories that are inspiring, and most people haven't heard of them, including me. It's crazy, right? But by the grace of God, uh, I did it. My publisher published it, and, he, and here it is. So I'll stop.